Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered ChumbaCasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to episode 163 of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is, for my money, the greatest actress of her generation, a 35-year-old who has been called the queen of peak TV because she's been such an integral part of the medium's platinum age. From NBC's The West Wing, to AMC's Mad Men, to Sundance TV's Top of the Lake, to Hulu's The Handmaid's Tale, the last of which she currently produces and stars on and which could finally bring her her first Emmy on her eighth nomination in September, the extraordinary Elizabeth Moss. Moss first began popping up on screens big and small at the age of six, but her first major role came at the age of 17, when Aaron Sorkin hired her to play Zoe Bartlett, the first daughter, on The West Wing. She was a recurring character on that massively acclaimed drama series, appearing in 25 episodes between 1999 and 2006, And almost immediately after it came to an end, Matthew Weiner hired her to play Peggy Olsen, a young woman who starts as a secretary and begins climbing the ranks at an ad agency in the 60s on Mad Men. Over the course of 88 episodes of that drama series, between 2007 and 2015, Olsen became a feminist hero and Moss became a star. During hiatuses, she kept busy with theatrical productions, films, and most notably, the limited series Top of the Lake, for which Jane Campion cast her as a detective, and for which Moss won a Golden Globe in 2014. Post-Mad Men, Moss returned to that role in a second limited series that currently is rolling out across Europe and will arrive stateside in September, and also signed up to do The Handmaid's Tale, a drama series that rolled out between April and June, taking the TV world by storm. It's an adaptation of Margaret Atwood's 1985 dystopian novel about a totalitarian society in what used to be America, where infertility has skyrocketed and fertile women are renamed and made to serve as sexual slaves, or handmaids, of the ruling elite. Moss plays Offred, formerly June, who is one of those women. Over the course of our conversation at the Sunset Tower Hotel, Moss and I discussed a wide range of topics, among them. How her career evolved from bit parts as a kid to a recurrent part on the West Wing as an adolescent to her first job as a series regular as an adult on Mad Men and how that show changed everything for her. Why, so soon after Mad Men ended, she was convinced that she should return to TV with both the second installment of Top of the Lake and another open-ended drama series in Handmaids. How the styles and approaches of her various TV collaborators, from Sorkin to Weiner to Campion to Handmaids Bruce Miller compare and contrast with one another, and how she adapted to each of them. When the election of Donald Trump happened in relation to the production of Handmaids, and how his administration's approach to women's rights has made Handmaids feel all the more prescient and urgent. Why she regards her part on top of the lake as her greatest departure, but her part in Handmaids as her greatest challenge, plus much more. So, without further ado, praise be, and let's go to that conversation. Elizabeth, thank you so much for doing this. Really appreciate it. We always just begin with basic. Where were you born and raised, and what did your folks do for a living? <laughs> I am born and raised in Los Angeles, California, and my parents are both musicians in the jazz, really, mostly. And my mom is a jazz and blues uh, harmonica player. So, nice. yeah. If what I'm reading is correct, you did your first professional job at six. How does how does somebody get started that young? Yeah, I actually I think I did maybe 
commercials before that really? too. Yeah, so it may have been even a little bit sooner. But yeah, I, I uh, and I think I've heard tell that I was a rug rat on a Kids in the Hall. Even before that, yeah, because wow. this this age six thing was this Jackie Collins that was, miniseries. Yeah, that was like my first, I guess, like real you know job or job on television. But we can go and spot you. Yes, earlier than that. Yes. <laughs> so what? But like what? What? How does that begin? Well, I actually went to a ballet school in the valley when I was really little because I did ballet till I was fifteen, and I, we did the Sound of Music as all ballet schools yes. do, <laughs> and I played the littlest one. And uh, there was an agent there, and she approached my mom and said, if you, you know, are interested and she wants to go out on auditions, that might be great. And I think I was, you know, sort of just into it, and I kept being into it. My mom kept checking in with me and saying over the years, you know, when I was young, younger and saying, is this something that you still like? And I did. So, yeah, it just seemed very natural. I was always a performer and very interested in being on stage so and the dancing continued throughout like simultaneously right yeah very much so so I I danced pretty much every day up until I was 15 ballet training so I'd stopped just before hitting the professional mark is that what even before 15 is that what you would hope to do or was there was acting always sort of the, the primary goal I think I thought maybe I could do both and I didn't have to decide, yeah. which now I'm sort of like, well, yeah, of course I didn't have to decide. I was so young. Right. But uh, I, th- I think I thought maybe there was a way to do both because I liked them both equally and I couldn't decide. And then when I was 15, you know, when you've been ballet, that's around the age when you start professionally, yeah. 16-ish, 17. And so I had to decide and it became clear as, as life became more sort of realistic that I couldn't do both. Mm-hmm. And so when when that was presented to me, I had to sort of choose between, you know, and it was like, okay, well, the one I could envision giving up is ballet, mm-hmm. and I couldn't envision giving up acting. Is it correct you graduated 15 from high school? Is that yes, something I read? with so, my GED. So it doesn't, I mean, yeah. So still pretty, I thank mean, you, early but on. I like, would like to make sure everyone doesn't think I'm some sort of genius. I, I just I basically got out of there early. Well, and so for, for the years between then and, and then 19, which is when I think you went to New York, what was going on? Well, I started West Wing when I was 17. And I think... I think I did Girl Interrupted when I was 16. So that was all still when you were living in L.A. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, and I did, you know, sort of, I think, the odd movie thing here and there. Everything that's, you know, you see it all on my IMGb. Yeah, yeah, and it's yeah. always like, I, I forget that I was in that movie. Right. Yeah, and then 17, I started The West Wing and did that until I was 19, moved to New York. And then I think picked up back on the West Wing once I was in New York. So how did how did the West Wing begin? And when it crossed your radar, did you realize this was a big deal or it was just another one of these IMDb credits, as you, as you said? Yeah, I knew it was a big deal because it was a big NBC show. I just had never had any luck getting pilots. Mad Men was the first pilot I ever did. I just didn't seem to fit into anybody's <laughs> idea of someone who should be in their show. <laughs> so when I got called into audition for the West Wing, I was thrilled because it was such a smart project and such great material and obviously hadn't premiered yet though so we didn't know that it was going to be as successful as it was and Aaron Sorkin was this brilliant writer and and I went and auditioned for three times and I thought there was just no way they were going to pick me because they sort of never picked me for television shows like that and I guess it just must have finally found my found my path and the last audition I did was I went in and I read with this guy and and he seemed really nice and he was a really fast talker and <laughs> and he seemed to know a lot about the the show and and then later I, I found out that that was Aaron the Sorkin that I read with. That's so, so funny. Yeah. So we'll, we'll remind people that you played Zoe Bartlett, the first daughter, and Sorkin dialogue is famously intricate and also he expects it to be delivered exactly as written. How did you adjust to that? Had you ever had anything like that before? No, certainly not. But at the same time, I was such a young actress that I thought one was supposed to know one's lines, you know. (laughs) And I assumed you were supposed to know it word for word. And I didn't have the balls to to change it. So it wasn't foreign to me. It was sort of like, well, yeah, obviously, I should know it word for word. And it was only later that I kind of learned that that was maybe unusual or not what everybody wanted. It was more that it was very fast and very smart. 
and I didn't even have the most intricate yeah. bits, you know. But yeah, I just uh, it, something about his rhythm and something about his his style. I just I fit in with really well. Were you also? I'm trying to remember. I, we we did have Allison Janney on here recently, and she was saying that the you know the walk in talks were complex but fun. I guess were you spared walk in talks, or was no, there I, ever you had some of those? I did have a couple. Yeah. <laughs> I did, and they were so fun. Yeah. Oh, it was like a play. Yeah. You know, it was like theater. <laughs> it was great. It was all choreographed and on Steadicam, and you just did it. You know. 30 times and and you'd just wait in your little corner or your little hallway or wherever and like you'd hear the you know what was often like a herd of elephants coming right. towards you with the camera and the spotter and everybody right. and the mic and everybody coming and and then you'd start jump in and do right. your bit and then you'd be left behind <laughs> it was super fun and I you bet. never of course you never especially me as such a young gun you never wanted to be the person who messed it up yeah right <laughs> so with that that show, I guess, technically, were you classified as a recurring yeah. character? So what I actually wonder is, is that in some ways even harder than being a regular? Because you have to come in and, as you say, you know, hit your mark or do your line and not screw it up. And you also only have such a limited relative to being a, a regular limited opportunity to shine. So you've got to knock it out when you do it, right? Absolutely. And I, it's why I have so much empathy for for any reoccurring character that comes on to you know handmaids or even Mad Men because I understand how scary it is and you're walking into a family that really knows each other and they've been there every day and you know it's difficult to fit in and and there's also this kind of terrifying pressure of technically if you don't do a good enough job they can absolutely not ask you back and every time you don't get asked back for a few episodes you're pretty sure that you totally messed up (laughs) you know and they hate you so yeah it's it's a it's a scary place to be in it's actually much easier to do to work on something every day well because it wasn't full-time in the sense that a a regular role would be were you doing a lot of other jobs during West Wing or or what else was going on in your life at that time what was I doing I mean I started to do theater so I moved to New York and did a play off Broadway and then I think I just started either auditioning for things and then occasionally doing a lot of independent films yeah so I did a ton of just tiny movies which was really you know at the time was amazing because I got to sort of practice and cut my teeth on all these films that you know a lot of people haven't even seen but just got I just got to practice you know well there was one that was during the run and I'm the name eludes me right now but you got I guess your first film recognition with uh, Indie Spirit or what was that Virgin yeah. yeah when I was I did that when I was 20 I think did that feel like a important one along the way yeah it really really yeah. did it oddly set me on this trajectory of of the kinds of characters I would play and the kind of material I was looking for. And it showed me, I think, what I was maybe good at, which was really, really dark stuff. Yeah. <laughs> and it was a, it, oh my gosh, I think the budget was $65,000. Oh my God. Yeah. And we made it in uh, 21 days. And I worked every day, obviously, and it was a crazy script. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it was really, it was very cool because, yeah, then we got nominated for John Cassavetti's award at the Independent Spirit Awards. And then I got nominated as well yes. the year that Charlize Theron was yes. was doing Monster yes. and so yeah it was a very kind of formative experience so as the west wing was was coming to an end was that a upsetting thing or did were you excited to go out and and do other things what did you imagine those next few years were going to look like well right before or after i think the pilot for mad men and my last episode of the west wing happened i think within a month of each other wow yeah, so I went and did my last episode, which was John Spencer's character's funeral. Yeah. And obviously that was very emotional for so many reasons. And I was very proud to be a part of that episode. I adored that man. He was a he was just a really wonderful person, mm-hmm. brilliant actor. So it was a meaningful way to have an ending to that show for me. And then I, I did I think it was afterwards that I did the pilot for Mad Men. Just for people who aren't in the business, the fact yeah. that there was a pilot you had been cast in the pilot, so you had been what, you had auditioned during West Wing? 
Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. And that wasn't like too much going on. I mean, I guess you kept going for auditioning for a lot of things. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, that's a great thing about a reoccurring character is right. you can go do other things. So, yeah, I, I and I wasn't on the West Wing that much at that point. Right. So because you had survived the kidnapping of season yeah, four. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> that was gone off to college. I yeah. Think, right? I, I, yeah. I forget. But anyway, so with <laughs> Mad Men, though, understanding that you were cast in the pilot just as the West Wing was coming to an end. How did it first before then, when when it wasn't your part yet, cross your radar? It was a really hot script in town, the pilot, I remember, Matt Weiner's. And I don't know, maybe I wouldn't have... How how does somebody think, you know, seeing Zoe Bartlett, how did they see Peggy Olsen in Zoe Bartlett? I really don't know. I I think I had to prove it to to them and to Matt. If I remember correctly, I don't think Matt had necessarily felt that me being on the West Wing was a good thing for him, if I remember right. And similarly to, you know, Top of the Lake, Jane Campion didn't necessarily, it wasn't because I played Peggy that I got that role. Right. So anyways, I I had to go in and I auditioned at least twice. And if I also remember correctly, I think I was one of the first people to audition. He says, the, yeah, the first right? day of audition, second person to read. Yes, yes. Quote, she came in and she was so young wearing this ingenue dress with her hair long and straight. And all of a sudden, I just saw Peggy. She was just complete in every way, close quote. What do you remember about that first day with Matt? Yeah, it's funny because I've seen my audition. Um, and we had a little party near the end of the show at Matt's house. And he showed us all of our auditions. That's awesome. Which was crazy. Yeah. And uh, I have the DVD somewhere. And I've seen my audition. And it's, it's, it's insane to me that anyone looking at me would ever think that I could play Peggy. I look I look like I just walked off the beach in Southern <laughs> California. I'm tan, weirdly. Right, right. I'm I've long blonde hair. I'm wearing like this really cute little like slightly revealing dress <laughs> that I remember at the time was like my audition dress. Right, right. I loved that dress. You know, it was some cheap dress. Right. But it, I look so far from Peggy. Right. You couldn't even imagine. I look like I should be on the OC, not like <laughs> Mad Men. But if you watch the performance, mm-hmm. it's almost exactly what's in the show. Oh wow. Yeah. So it's it's pretty much just a direct transference I just look different so what does that say you had already something in the script you had connected to yeah I really did I just the best way I can describe it is it often sounds a bit simplistic but that I I just felt like I knew her mm-hmm. I just felt like I knew her and I didn't know why or what that was but I just could see who she was inside and it just felt like a perfect fit from the very beginning well, for anyone who's been living under a rock for the last decade, because it literally it just is the decade anniversary, I yeah, think, of yeah. when the first episode went on the air, Peggy started as, as obviously the secretary at the <laughs> ad agency in the 60s and worked her way up. And I wonder what that was like when you're coming off, for, let's just starting with the pilot, but going forward, you're coming off Sorkin dialogue, which is like a mile a minute. Yeah. And here the pacing is just so different and deliberate and what Matt obviously had in mind. But just how did you acclimate? How did how was it even described to you what he was looking for? Yeah, it, um, it kind of wasn't. I yeah. kind of just got it. And, and Matt and I actually have talked about this, that we didn't even speak about the character for years. Occasionally we would get on the phone for hours and we would talk about the show and different things and and we would talk about the character in sort of a like as if she was a friend but there was never any play it like this or play it like that or this is who she is i think we both kind of understood that for whatever reason i got who he wrote mm-hmm. and that shouldn't be tampered with and shouldn't and you got to be careful with that mm-hmm. you know if you talk too much about something it can like yeah, yeah, ruin it right. so it wasn't ever explained to me i just understood it and I had been a fan of like all the movies that he referenced before the pilot. What were some of those? The Apartment, okay. Best Years of Our Lives. Yeah. There were these movies that he was like kind of asked people to watch. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I've seen all of those. <laughs> so I I, yeah. I I was so familiar with that kind of that era and yeah. I was familiar with that kind of writing and it just it felt right. It just felt really right from the very beginning. There was so much humor in it as well, which was very much, which was the, the similarity between that and West Wing. Yeah. There was such an intelligent sense of humor. So I think West Wing set me up really well for that. So the, the first season starts rolling out, puts 
AMC on the map, which really prior to that was like old movies yeah. with commercials, yeah. puts all of you guys on the map in a different way than ever before. Yeah. Why do you think it clicked as much as it did at and and how quickly did it change your life on a day-to-day way? I mean, I think that people were really starting to ask for intelligent television. And it had already started with, you know, The Shield Mm -hmm. and The Wire and then Sopranos. And it had already started, but people were really asking for it. And they'd gotten it on their sort of premium cable. Mm -hmm. But I think people were just starting to realize that, that... that audiences were really smart Mm -hmm. and they appreciated good work. And so it just kind of came at the right time. And there was just, there's no one thing that made Mad Men successful. It was everything. You know, I always talk about how if the cinematography hadn't been great, it wouldn't have worked. Mm -hmm. If the sets had been terrible and cheap, cheesy looking Mm -hmm. wouldn't have worked if the costumes looked like costumes it would have been distracting it was every single element every single department that came together to do some of their best work backed by writing and great acting so it was just it was really everybody and all of our directors always were top-notch and amazing and it's not a solo sport this and as people were responding to all of those great elements including your performance what was the first sort of recognition for you that that this was clicking i suppose the first summer we aired, I was in I was in New York for some reason, and I started to see these ads in the subways. And I had been, you know, been living in New York, and all of a sudden there were ads in my subways. <laughs> and then I guess it wasn't honestly until the Golden Globes of that year, because we were so brand new and we had you know we'd gotten great reviews, but the ratings weren't great. So, you know, we just didn't know. And we thought maybe we had a small audience. And then all of a sudden, it was the year that the writer strikes. So, yeah, yeah. so there weren't actually any actually Golden Globes. Oh my God. They did on TV. They did yes. like a press conference, right? Yes. Yeah. So we had a party at the Chateau Marmont. Okay. And we were on the balcony. And John won. Yeah. And that was, you'd never heard a more shocked group in your life. Yeah. I mean, everyone was just absolutely shocked. And then... <laughs> We won. Yeah. And it was just <laughs> the biggest surprise of all of our lives. I mean, right. it was like the years of Grey's Anatomy. Right. And like, it was just, you just didn't think that that was ever going to happen. So right. that was kind of the first real inkling of, okay, I think we're going to come back. And were you, prior to Mad Men, were you, you know, you want to go to the supermarket or whatever, would you be basically unbothered and now that changed? Or how, like, no. on a personal level, was it different? It was so much slower than that. Yeah. Because, yeah, because the audience of our show is was always a little bit small. Yeah. You know, I mean, it, it, it's... It just, it took years for that to, to kind of be a thing that started happening. And I also look really different from the character. Right. So, no, it took years for that to be a thing. Very gradual. At the outset, did you know how huge a character Peggy was going to be throughout the run of the show? Because you were always second in the credits after John, but at the same time, I know you've said you were not necessarily second on the call sheets and you and plenty of people, number four, (laughs) and plenty of people who people assumed were like, you know, integral characters of the show would in one way or another drop off over the years. So were you always aware that Peggy would be there at the end? No, not at all. I, you know, I knew I'd signed a a contract that I knew unless they fired me, I'd be around. But no, I really didn't. And I I think it's interesting because I think it's a combination of things. I think Matt, you know, knew that he was going to have her character rise up to be more than a secretary, maybe. But I think the level of it and the way that she became, I think, such a partner for for Don was something that maybe was developed a little bit more organically over time. So yeah, I think it was a combination of the two. I certainly didn't think about it when I saw my name as second in the credits. I remember when I first like saw our opening credits and it was second. I was very surprised. (laughs) I was like, nobody had told me and I was like, that's weird. You didn't Uh, feel at that point like you were the No, no. I thought four was a very like appropriate number. So no, I had no idea and I, I really, really didn't. I mean, every season and I honestly was very, like, consistently so pleased with everything that I got to do. When I moved out here to L.A. about six years ago, I struck up a kind of weird Harold and Mud <laughs> friendship with this woman who's now 90 years old. Her name is Marcia Nassiter. She was a secretary in the 60s wow. who became the first female vice president of a studio in Hollywood. Oh. She helped to make Rocky and 
Coming Home and a lot of a lot of great movies. And I, as I was getting to know her, we, we, Mad Men somehow came up, and she said she had started to watch it, but it was too painful. She said, "I, I lived it." And so I wondered for you if there were any people like that who had sort of experienced what Peggy went through, who you knew about, who you consulted, anything like that. No, not really, honestly. I mean, as a, you know, somewhat intelligent person, I, I was aware of, of things that had happened and was aware of what women had done in the workplace. So I, no. And I didn't want to tell anybody's story in particular either. I wanted to tell her story and, right. I, and I wanted her to be an individual. And I just didn't have any problem imagining what that was like or or putting myself in in her shoes you know I was close enough to being an adolescent that I understood the idea of being insecure and feeling awkward and not knowing what your place was so I it just didn't take that that much for me to make that that leap you know there are there are so many great episodes that I could ask you about but I want to ask you just about one that's sort of a microcosm I think and that is the suitcase this is season four episode seven and it basically centers around Don and Peggy and many thought it was the best episode up to that point and it's just a good excuse to ask you about working with John Hamm who I think you had more scenes with probably than anyone else and just what that working relationship was like and if you took anything particularly away from it yeah that episode was my, is my favorite as well and I think that it was kind of it was this beautiful moment in time where it was pretty much just John and I all the time and so it was kind of quiet like mm-hmm. it, you know what I mean it yeah. just was kind of like relaxed and nice and and John and I were very good friends at that point and it was just I think a great example of how why television is so awesome because you can spend four years mm-hmm. waiting or three you know three and a half years waiting for this moment and you can build it up you couldn't have done it in season two you know you needed that time and it's just that's why I love television that's where my heart that's why my heart's really in, in television is because I just I love that you can create that suspense and it was a beautiful thing we just kind of just we work really well together. Yeah. We're very, very close friends. And we understand each other. We understand the way that the other person works. There's a, a huge amount of mutual respect and admiration. So it kind of couldn't have, couldn't have been more perfect, honestly. And over the years, I think as well, as we've gotten to know each other even more, our relationship has deepened in the same way that Don and Peggy has. Don and Peggy's has, yeah. You know, I think that obviously there's a little bit less of a mentor protege yeah, yeah, yeah. because that would be a little condescending <laughs> of him. Right. <laughs> but but there is that there is that element of father daughter or older brother younger sister, you yeah. know. And so exploring that in that episode, things weren't that far off from reality a lot of wow. the time. Yeah, That's it was great. really interesting. So generally speaking, how how far ahead of the viewer were you in terms of knowing the plot and when in the process did you know what the ending was going to be for Peggy? Mm. I knew the end end of Mad Men for like five years. Oh my god! Yeah, you're a good secret keeper. I am. That's that's whenever <laughs> whenever anyone tells me a secret, I have yes. to and I have to say to them, I have to prove to them that I'm going to keep it. I tell them you that. Tell them that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm like I am a very good secret right, keeper. Right. So yeah, so I knew the Coca Cola thing for five wow. years. Yeah, but Peggy's end, I think. When did I know about her? And Stan, I would say, I would say, uh, God, some point, I think at the beginning of that season, mm-hmm. I mean, it was kind of something that I thought, you know, I thought I thought was going to happen. It had been, yeah. yeah, it had been, I, I could see it building up. I could see it becoming more and more obvious to me, but I didn't know how it was going to happen until I read the script. But I, I, I knew about that. I knew about that. And I, and I had gotten wind as well that our that John and I did our last scene, he was going to be on the road. Like I knew a lot of that stuff at the beginning of the season. What were your personal feelings, whether or not you would have expressed them to Matt about, about the resolution, about her not going off with Joan, about her ending up with Stan? Yeah. You must've had your own uh, opinion on this. What what was it? I loved it. I thought that that was exact. First of all, I have a huge amount of respect for the writer. It's his show. It's his vision. He's literally, it's like a novel. He's writing it. Mm -hmm. 
so that's how he sees these characters ending. That's how they end. Mm-hmm. There's no argument there. <laughs> I, you know what I mean? There's no opinion here because right. you can walk around and ask a bunch of people how they think it should end. Right. And they're all going to say different things. <laughs> Matt's writing the show, so right. he's going to write it. But that said, I really, really, really loved it. I thought that it was, I loved the idea of going her going off with Joan, but I can see that that's not, she's a writer. She's a writer. She's supposed to write. She mm-hmm. loves it. So I could see that that's not, she wouldn't have been able to do that with Joan. She would have had to give up writing. So that wasn't exactly right for her, I think. And I think that they'll end up working, to, they would have ended up working Somewhere, together anyways, yeah, yeah. you know? And then as far as Stan, I think the idea that Peggy actually finds love and has a uh, has this chance for an amazing relationship is actually super punk rock because it's like, <laughs> it's not what you would think because everyone, I think, expected her to take over the company. Mm-hmm. In the last episode, which is completely unrealistic, she would have taken over the company in 1980, (laughs) you know, or been creative director in 1980, just like Pete says, which is what happened. It was too early for her to have taken over the company in some major way or have taken Don's role or something. So I thought that I I loved it. And also, as I think you've said before, the we kind of know that from a professional standpoint, she's going to be okay. But you don't know romantically if she can swing it. Exactly. And I think it, it... blows the stereotype apart of like a driven woman who's very good at her job has to not have a great personal life. Like that's obviously not true. So I think that that was actually more subversive for her to end up with Stan than for her not to. During hiatuses on between Mad Men, I mean, how long would those be generally? They would be about like we shot for like five months. So about, yeah. Have Five, a good six, amount of time yeah, between. Yeah, six months or so. You could have, you would have been well within your rights to just lounge and not do anything. But you, <laughs> seems like you, for for one reason or another, really pushed yourself. You went and did your Broadway debut, I think, in 2008 during that hiatus. You started Top of the Lake in one of those. What was the mm-hmm. thought process? Just that you would get bored or that you had specific, you know, there were a couple movies in there. Did you feel like, I want to keep open the... I, not be thought of solely as a TV actress. Just what was the rationale for these hiatus decisions? I think all of that. Yeah. I think, you know, number one being I would have gotten bored. Yeah. For sure. You you know, you, if you're playing one character for five months, you definitely want to try to play another mm-hmm. character for a little while. You know, I also am just a, still, you know, a, a working actress that like, that, that wants to work. Mm-hmm. I, it wasn't like I was like hugely famous and a billionaire that could just like rest, <laughs> you know, and I like, I did have to work sometimes. Right. So I love working. It's my favorite thing. Everyone like knows me, knows that mm-hmm. that's like, I'm, um, I don't even like to say workaholic because yeah. I actually have a really good relationship yeah, with yeah. work. Yeah. <laughs> but I do love it. So, yeah. So it also gave me the opportunity, I think, to keep trying things and keep, you know, with like Top of the Lake. I didn't know if I could play anything else other than Peggy at a, at a certain point. I, I thought I could, mm-hmm. but I kind of needed to prove it to myself as well. I think it was around season five that I did that because it was around the same time that Peggy left the company. Okay. So Peggy left Sterling Cooper and then I sort of went off on my <laughs> adventure. It was all Mad Men has a really a really strange way of paralleling my life yeah. in in personal ways that I will never talk about, but like <laughs> it definitely parallels in a lot of professional ways right. as well. Right. So anyways, it was around season 5 that I think Peggy was really being solidified as mm-hmm. one of the, you know, leads of the show and I was starting to get more well known for that mm-hmm. and being recognized for that and so I needed to be able to prove to myself that I could do something else. Mm-hmm. And I think it really, I think it was pretty smart of of me, yeah, <laughs> frankly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> uh, it kind of set me up to also think that maybe I had a life post Mad Men. You, you could know? feel a little more confident. Yeah, but. yeah. I could have failed miserably, and then I would have would have worked. I guess the opposite. So you know. Well, but let's just contextualize for for people who again maybe haven't haven't seen all these things we're talking about with with Top of the Lake. This would have been 2013 that you did season one. You're playing a detective who is in some way, I guess, investigating a case that provokes memories of some horrible things that happened to her as well. And this is for Jane Campion, who people will remember won an Oscar for the piano. Yeah. And you've called it the most challenging role you've ever played. And this was even after Handmaids and everything. Somebody asked you and you said, this is that was that was and is because it's now back the most challenging role you've ever played and the biggest departure for you yeah and i'm wondering why i mean obviously there's accent there's some other things involved but what what makes it 
the most challenging. Yeah, I'm going to contradict myself slightly. I think that Handmaid's actually the most challenging, but that Top of the Lake is the biggest departure, for okay. sure. Handmaid's was challenging in ways that we can get to, mm-hmm. being the two hats that I wore and the amount of time that I worked. Yes. But Top of the Lake was challenging in a, in the because it was... It's just so different from me with the with the accent, with her body language, with the detective thing and having to do things that I that don't come naturally to me, like, you know, pulling a gun and looking Mm -hmm. tough. (laughs) (laughs) So that was definitely. Yeah, that was it's just it's never felt it's felt great playing her, but it's it's never felt easy or comfortable. So it must have been pretty validating to again go to actually to actually first of all get to go to the Golden Globes that year not you'd been on yeah, other yeah. years but to go and win for top of the lake is a you know must have again reiterated that you can do things outside of Mad Men in, yeah. a, in a nice way right yeah for sure it really really did that was just about the shock of my life yeah. I'll tell you that night I was you gunning go for Helen Mirren I yeah. was like that girl's got this but she got the Screen Actors Guild Award yeah, so she, she yeah did okay. we didn't have to fight it out <laughs> yeah I was very very surprised to win that because I never won anything before either so I was like well, I didn't know they actually gave it, them to you give it, give it another month or so but oh, um, thank you. so all right so as Mad Men ended the next thing that you were constantly asked was like all right how do you follow Mad Men which again as one of the great shows I understand why people would wonder that and I found it very interesting that so you go to see Brian Cranston in All the Way on Broadway playing Lyndon Johnson which he did right after Breaking Bad ended Mm -hmm. and I guess what you go backstage yeah and what happened there my brother and I went backstage to say hi because I, you know, knew him a little yeah. bit. Fellow AMC. Yes, exactly. Yes. I'd seen him on the circuit, yes. Christmas parties yes. and such. Yes. And, and yeah, we were chatting afterwards. You know, I'm sure you've met him. He's like the nicest yes. guy in the world. Actually, Vince Gilligan is actually the nicest guy in the world. <laughs> Ryan's like Number a very two, close right. second. But he, I was talking to him and, and, you know, I was asking him how I was going with Breaking Bad being done. And he said, yeah, I, I come to do this play and, and it's. Kind of, he seemed to say, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but the impression that I got from him was that it seemed to be a really great palate cleanser and a really great way of letting go of an era and, and moving on to something completely different because he changed not only roles, but he changed the medium. Mm-hmm. And that was the key. It was not just playing something different, but completely changing the way, the muscles that you worked. Yeah. And so that was, I just never forgot it. And that's why I went after Mad Men. I did a, I did a few films mm-hmm. and then... And then Heidi Chronicles came along. Revival. And- yeah. And actually, I think I might have signed on to that before I finished Mad Men. Okay. Yeah, I'm not totally sure. Maybe it was like right afterwards. But I remember thinking yeah. about what Brian had done. And I was like, whatever Brian does, yeah. I shall do. <laughs> well, you were great. I went with my mother and you oh. got a Tony nomination. So that was yeah. a cool thing. And then that was, as you say, a period when you started to, I guess, do movies again as well. So Metal Land, which will factor in with handmaids in a way in a moment but just at that point when you were thinking in terms of mediums media whatever the plural would be was the idea that as far as tv you you were anticipating taking a longer break because you you know i i i guess just to mix it up as you say the reason you would do broadway is something different but like did you ever imagine that you would be back on tv as soon as you've come back not really no i think I knew that I would be back in television because after you just it's all where all the good scripts are yeah. most of the time Thanks and I was reading scripts and I was getting sent things and I I just felt like I I very much I always liked the television scripts better. <laughs> so I knew it was going to happen at some point. And I had toyed with a couple of shows, a couple of very, very good shows mm-hmm. that were very difficult to kind of decide on there's just so much good stuff out there but I don't think I I think I thought maybe it would be like another year because I was also shooting the second season of Top of the Lake when I signed on to Handmaid's Tale oh that was before yeah that was before I know everyone thinks it's after because it comes after but like no it was actually before they just had like a little bit more time than we had yeah a little more (laughs) post-production time I actually used to make I used to I mean really rib Ari and Jane our other director because I would be like you realize Gwen and I have gone and shot (laughs) entire seasons of our television shows oh they have God. been edited and they have aired oh before this will come out <laughs> but you know god bless them for right, having that time right, i wish right. we all did yes but yeah so anyways i think that i didn't think i was going to be on quite as soon but probably within like a year you know <laughs> so now what was the first awareness of handmaid's tale 
I mean, maybe you knew the book existed, but that there was somebody trying to do it as a TV series. And also why after that did it, it sounds like it took a, a quite a while for you to get to yes. So yeah. what was like to the point where they were threatening, <laughs> we're going to take it to somebody else. So yeah. what, how did that all go down? Yeah. So they sent me, you know, as usual, you get an email from your agents with like some information and then the script attached. And I remember just knowing immediately I saw what it was and I was like, this is gonna be good this is gonna be tough I was familiar with the book I knew it was prolific I knew it was an amazing role and what a great idea and everything and so I read the first episode and it was beautiful Mm -hmm. so brilliant as everyone else you know knows now and Bruce has been nominated for an Emmy for it and then and I was like fuck (laughs) because I thought this is really good and now I have a problem because now I have to figure out if I should do it. And then so I asked for the second script because being somewhat versed in television, I know the second script can be hard. And so I asked for the second one and I read it and I literally at the end was like, fuck again (laughs) because it was so good and it was almost better and it was just like, it put me in a real pickle. And then I talked to Bruce on the phone and we sort of fell in love. This is, we should say, for Bruce Miller. Yeah. And had you been aware of him prior to this? I suppose a little bit with previous work that he'd done, Mm -hmm. but I didn't know him or anything like that. Yeah, Yeah. I'd seen some of his shows, but yeah, I didn't really know him. So he was the only name attached to the material at that point, or was Warren Littlefield already also? No, it was just Bruce. Okay. So I talked to Bruce, and him and I like fell in love, and and I was in Australia, and we talked for like an hour, and it was just great, and he just said all the right things, and I just was like, this is a guy I think I could like get along with. Mm -hmm. And then I, you know, I just, I really needed to make sure that it was going to be what I thought it was going to be, what I what I wanted it to be. I talked to somebody at Hulu, and then eventually... It was already clear that this was going to Hulu? Yes, it was already at okay. Hulu. Yeah, it was already picked up. It was already at Hulu for 10 episodes. I got to quickly ask, because yeah. this was something I was wondering. Did you have a Hulu subscription before this show? I think I did, Did you actually. really? Okay. I think <laughs> I did. Because I think so many people are now getting it because of you guys, totally. but I wondered if you... I think I did because of the Mindy Project. Okay. Because I was a, a big fan of the Mindy okay. Project, right. so I think I did because of that. Right. And by the way, yes. I still pay for Hulu. <laughs> Guys, what are you doing? Comp the poor no, lady. They have. They gave me a free year subscription, <laughs> right. but I don't know how to like cancel In- my old it. one, <laughs> like, put the new one in. Guys. So occasionally I'll get like a notification that like your Hulu subscription is like been you know redone for the month, and oh I it makes me God. laugh every time. Well, so they're getting know, my like a good cause. yeah, yes. they're getting my like eleven ninety nine like. Every month, because I well, do you're getting the version you do of get with, with commercials or without. Without, without. okay. Yeah, absolutely sure. without. Okay. I'm right. not a not scripting. Yeah. <laughs> I was literally watching Hulu last night. By the way, right. watching Real Housewives. There you go. Um, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so I talked to Hulu and they were great, and then I talked to Warren, okay. who had now come on in yes. what capacity. He had come on in a, a sort of a capacity of like we wanted to make sure that there was somebody who had that experience yeah. in television. And we'll, we'll say, if I guess we can just refer people to that episode of this podcast, but Warren Littlefield yeah. ran yeah. NBC in the must-see TV 90s and then has been a producer of stuff like Fargo yeah. since then. Yeah, and Fargo was my favorite TV show. Really? Yes. So I said... What about the guy who did Fargo? (laughs) (laughs) So that's how he came about? Yeah, I mean, I think he was already interested in it. Like, I think he had already been talking to them about it. And then I said, what about Warren Littlefield? Now, you're saying this before you had committed to doing the part? Yeah, really before. Because that was going to be part of what it took to get you to sign on. Yeah. But also, when along the line did it become part of what it was going to take for you that you would also be a producer? Oh, that was a very easy. That was they offered it to me. I would have asked anyways. Right. That was in the initial offer. So right at the beginning. Yeah. And why was that important to you? Obviously, I mean, I can imagine, but I wonder for you. Because if you're gonna, I think, be the face of a show, and so much is going to be riding on your shoulders, you have to take responsibility for that. And I needed to have some control, and I needed to have a say. And I had been on a show for already for you know seven seasons, yeah. and so I had learned quite a bit. And then Top of the Lake. So I felt like I was at a point when I could start to learn a little bit more and broaden my own horizons a little bit. And then, yeah, it's just about having a little bit of say. And just to illustrate some of what producers do on top of your 
responsibilities as the star of the show. What were I, I've read a lot of the different things that you you contributed as a producer. Can yeah. you share some of the more interesting ones? Yeah. So honestly, from the very beginning to the very bitter yeah. end. Yeah. In the beginning, it was a lot of casting and finding directors. And including Reed. Including Reed. Who you, again, just to remind people, acted for in Meadowland yes. two years ago. Something like that. Yes, something yeah. like that. I'd done a cameo in Meadowland. We had become friends before that. Oh, okay. And that's why she asked me to do Meadowland. I got it. Through a mutual friend of ours, my best friend, mm-hmm. who worked on Looking. And yeah, then Reed did yeah. Looking. Yeah. Et cetera, et cetera. Small world. So yeah, so Reed came up for for the show and I I played it real cool because there's a real kind of you gotta be careful with that kind of thing because you don't want to push too hard for your friend because it can backfire mm-hmm. and it can seem like you're just pushing for them because you're your friends. Right. So I really wanted I vouched for her and right. I suggested her. I brought her up, but I also just wanted to make sure that it was like everyone really sure. it was it wasn't forced on them. Yeah. Anyway, so then Yeah, so Warren signed on, and then we were casting, looking for directors, department heads, just every little thing down to the the color of the costume, Mm -hmm. different casting choices later on. I mean, it's almost difficult for me to even tell you what it was. Yeah, yeah, because it it could almost be easier to say what it wasn't like, because it was just everything. And I think the, the biggest thing that I was involved in that I didn't realize or didn't think about the fact that I was going to be involved in was in a post-production. Just giving notes on all the episodes and everything. Exactly, and yeah. seeing cuts, and, and I've seen every episode 10 million times and <laughs> scenes more than that, and right. I and and look watching all the dailies, and that, that I didn't realize I was going to be such a big part of. How do you like that aspect of it? Some actors and actresses say, you know, I'll never watch a performance that I gave or whatever. Here, you... You better be, right? Yeah, yeah, So totally. how do you like that? I, I thought I would have a problem with it. I thought it might be weird, but you kind of just get over it really quickly. Yeah. You just switch hats. You're not really watching yourself all the right. time either. You're watching the shot and you're watching this and that and you're trying to keep track of what's happening. And so it's not it's not like you're watching your performance. Right. And it's, it's weird. But I also, I, I was one of those people who didn't like watching myself, but just because I found it boring, not because, <laughs> not because I was going to be upset about it, but just because I was right. like, why would I want to sit around watching myself? Why do you think it is that this show, which was rolling out until June 14th, so it's all still pretty fresh for everybody, certainly relative to the other shows that we're talking about this year. Why do you think people have connected to the show and to your performance on such a deep level? You've seen big connections to shows and people that you've been a part of, you know, involved with before. But this, to me, I I think it feels different. I wonder if you agree. I do. I really do. It does feel different. It feels different to me. It felt different playing it. And the responses definitely felt different. The responses felt so personal from people. Even from the very beginning, we were still shooting the show in January, and we sent like the first three episodes out to television Mm -hmm. critics. And they were very, very rough, and it was really, really terrifying. (laughs) I know people get to see them in even rougher cuts. Mm But that early, but it was just terrifying to send them out so soon. And and then this this there was a sort of incredible response from the critics. And we went to the TCAs in January, which is where you go and you talk to all the critics. And I'm explaining it to your audience, right. not to you. Right. Absolutely, <laughs> thank you. And it just felt like they got it. And mm-hmm. they were talking about it as if it was like, as if they had worked on the show. It was so personal to them. It was like they were a part of it. And it was that was the first kind of like, wow, I think people really got what we tried to do. And then the response from the audience, it's just, it's felt much more personal than anything I've ever done. And I think, I think the reason why is the reason why I signed on and the reason why I connect to that character more than any character I've ever played. I think there's a basic thing, no matter who you are, race, color, or creed, of survival and you want to survive and freedom and the idea of freedom and, and the idea of your own rights as a human, wherever you are. And I think that that is something that, really, that people really connect to. I think it's obviously something people very much connect to right now well that's where i want to actually go next because some people a lot of people that find out that this show was actually kind of essentially for the very most part in the can prior to november 8th 2016 they're they're surprised to hear that because it feels in some ways like a response to what's happened since then and i wonder for you just first of all where you were and what went down on November 8th for you personally, and then also how you think the show has been impacted by that, because I wonder if even if the show would have generated a different, a, a noticeably different reaction had the outcome on November 8th been different. 
Yeah, so we were on episodes four and five out of ten, but they had almost all been written, and obviously when you do a TV show, even if the script for the last episode isn't written, there's an outline, everyone Mm -hmm. knows what's going to happen. So yeah, it was pretty much all formed, and then obviously based on the book written in 1985. So that was formed. We went and watched the election that night. I remember Reed was in town because she was doing a scene that we hadn't gotten. And uh, so me and her and OT and a few people went and watched the election. And then at a certain point, I gave up and went home because I had to get up really early mm-hmm. the next morning. Mm-hmm. And sort of but stayed up till like 2.30 in the morning refreshing my computer. So you knew what was going yeah, on. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And then I went to work the next day and I and it was odd. We shoot, we shoot in Canada. Mm-hmm. And it was a very strange feeling. It was as if everyone knew something really bad had happened to you but didn't really know what they should say about Mm it and we did a couple scenes that day joe and i joseph finds who plays the commander and he had a couple of really key lines from the book and and one of them is better never means better for everyone it always means worse for some Mm -hmm. which is margaret's Mm -hmm. line from the book and i just remember being you know obviously so struck by that in that moment on that day and and yeah so as far as, you know, the, I think, parallels between the the show and what's happening, obviously, we would prefer <laughs> for it not to be <laughs> right. that, you know? We, we, we really would. Right. We'd rather it be like, wow, what is this crazy world of Gilead? Right. That would be much more interesting for us. But here we are. And obviously, these are themes that are deep-rooted, not only in our country. And, you know, the fact that people have found some strength in, you know, seeing themselves reflected back at themselves is something I think that we're very honored Yeah, about. People have commented on the flashback to when June and all of her female colleagues are fired because it's mandated, especially because you carrying out all of your belongings in the box. I guess they, for a lot of people, it feels particularly shitty after everyone had enjoyed Oh so much God. the moment when you're carrying your box into McCann Erickson yes. in Mad Men, which is the most gift moment of all time with your cigarette dangling yes. and all that. How is that not a meme? I, I, I've I, never made this you connection did it? before. Okay, well, I got to tell you, That's I was just amazing. thinking like it just is the ultimate hitting home of almost like society, how backwards things have moved recently, I think. Totally. And we see it all in your face I mean in these two moments so I just wondered uh, I mean I I don't even know if there's a question there but I just have to uh, say it really that was striking to see the same person I mean imagine somebody's watching catching up with Mad Men now and then goes and sees you yeah absolutely and I mean that's what I think we're that's what we're facing and that's what we're looking at this thing sort of incredible reversal in fortune and this reversal of rights that is is just shocking you know, and I, I, but that's really, it's, I don't know why I've never actually made the, the specific box connection before, well, but that's very we'll, interesting. We'll make a GIF today. And yeah, we'll, let's, we'll go if viral. we can, that would be great. Thank you. Whoever gets there first yes, wins. Yes. So why is it, that, what is it about Offred, or I guess she would prefer to still be called June, that allows her to remain defiant, even as people try to beat her down and, and as is maybe... You know, her defiance, I guess, is maybe best manifested in that Nolite Te Bastardes Carborandorum. Very good. Well, we're leaving out the punchline. <laughs> yes. Bitches. But, I mean, somebody in that situation to even be able to fire up that kind of FU, where do you think that's coming from in her? I think that women are incredibly strong and moms are incredibly strong. And, you know, it's it's a very old idea, the way that a, a mother lion will protect her cub. And I think that, you know, there's all those stories of women finding that superhuman strength to lift the car, you know, when their child is trapped under. I think that we as people as well have, have a lot of untapped strength that can come out when we need it. And I think that June finds that in the interest of, finding her daughter Mm -hmm. and getting her family back. I don't know if she would do that for herself, but it is her daughter that actually keeps her alive because she can't give up until she gets her back or at least knows that she's safe, even if they're not reunited. So it's, it's her love. It's for me, this show is so much about love and it's, it's her love for her family that actually keeps her going, keeps her alive. And I've seen many incredible women all around the world survive such 
intense ours and violations and you know we've we've been lucky to hear their stories and after their survival and I think that you know June has that in her this person who just will not give up right and that's what I love about it I think a lot of people I mean that's clearly there's this connection it's inspiring you know it's inspiring to me I mean I I look up to her in that way you know with our last few minutes here, I just want to do a couple of big picture things, if we may. Sure. I read that you tend to have your headphones on listening to music between takes on on shows going back for years. Yeah. So what was sort of the most played song for West Wing, Mad Men, and now Handmaids? Gosh, I don't know if I did it when I was in West Wing. I was so young then, so I'm not sure if I'd gotten into it at that point. For me, Mad Men was probably... I was very, I, and I still am, but I definitely was discovering Seeger Rose, okay. this Icelandic yeah. band. Yeah, yeah. So it was probably Seeger Rose, but I couldn't pick a particular song, mainly because I have a bad memory. <laughs> <laughs> Top of the Lake, did you ask that one, or you want to show That's going to sub in for West Wing, so let's Okay, perfect. Top of, yeah. Top of the Lake definitely would have been Seeger Rose. I have to say, and then a little bit of Eminem. Okay. Yeah, which I know is an odd choice. Oh, that's but, uh, just interesting. Yes, and then... Handmaids, my God! If there's like one, it's so hard. There's an, there's a other Icelandic artist named Olafur Arnolds, okay. and he has done incredible albums on his own. But he also has done soundtracks, and he did Broadchurch. Oh yeah. And there are a couple of tracks on that that I would say would probably be the biggest, particularly one called Beth's Theme, that is just. Heartbreaking, <laughs> and so there's a couple of songs, and that actually they're both his that I can put on when I really need them. All right. You know what I mean? And okay. will really sort of connect me to a more emotional place. Nice. Yeah. You've received a Best Actress in a Drama Series Emmy nomination for The Handmaid's Tale. This is your eighth overall, seventh in this category. We looked; <laughs> only five women in history have more in this category nominations. What does it mean to you to to you know, be nominated, and then what would it mean to you to actually take one of these puppies home? Do you, are you one of the, a lot of people, you know, oh, I keep my Oscar in the bathroom, or right, whatever, right. but like, I don't believe that from anybody, so, <laughs> I know. Yeah. Unless those people have like five yeah, Oscars. Yeah, maybe, yeah, Meryl maybe, but <laughs> Yeah, like, totally. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what would it mean to me to, to win or not to get yeah. nominated? Well, so, what, what has it meant to pick up eight of these, and oh, then yeah. to, yeah, sure to I win. feel like, honestly... I never in my life could have ever thought that I would have eight nominations. That is insane to me. <laughs> and I feel like as far as that goes, I, I, I eight at 35 is pretty good. I and I think, think so. that, yeah, I, I feel like eight maybe equals winning one. So, like, <laughs> like I don't know you how many you have to get nominated right. for to, like, equal right. one win. Right. But I feel pretty satisfied. Okay. I'll, leave it, I'll leave it at that. That okay. I feel like eight is, like, beyond what I could have ever expected. It just really, really is. So, and then, especially for, like, three different roles, you know? So, I'm kind of good in that department. I really am not, like, asking for anything more, quite genuinely. As far as winning, I... It would mean so much to me, obviously. I, yeah, I agree with you. Where I, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna say that it wouldn't. Of course, it would because the category is so amazing. Yeah, it's incredible. There's, it's incredible if you look at that category, and it's been like that every year that I've been nominated. Mm-hmm. Where you have these women who I have seen every single one of their performances and think they're brilliant, and they inspire me to do better. So for me, the win would be, be I just couldn't believe that I was necessarily better than any of those women you know that's the thing is I just think that that we all every character every performance that they've given is so incredible so for me that would be the that would be the crazy part of it now are you're also nominated as a producer of the series which is nominated for best drama series which would be kind of an amazing thing in itself because for years everybody's been aware of oh Netflix and Amazon and and they do great things but if Hulu wins a series award before either of them, that's like that's the biggest upset of all time, and it, and it would be an amazing. So you you already put AMC on the map, so you, that's that can be your you know your your side totally. career putting networks on the map. No, it kind of is. Yeah. AMC and Sundance TV and now Hulu. Yeah. So that's my pitch as a producer yes. when I go in and try to pitch a project. Right. I very unabashedly, right. without shame, tell them that I would like to put them on the map. That's good. You should I, I, home shopping. Network, she's coming exactly. next. Exactly. So I'm going 
to make you. Right. And then finally, I know you've got a, a number of, of exciting things that are rolling out. We mentioned season two of Top of the Lake. You were in the movie The Square That Won the Palm d'Or at Cannes. Yeah. And I read that you may be doing a third with Alex Ross Perry, yes. who you've made. These are some of the indies that we referred to earlier. Yeah. So if the rest of your career had to closely resemble some other, you know, someone else's, yeah. who would that be and why? Actually, someone I mentioned earlier, Helen Mirren, probably. Yeah. yeah, I think, I mean, she's, I'm, you know, she's one of my absolute favorites. And I've met her, and she's very, very cool, broad. Mm-hmm. And I just think that she's done a very perfect mix of television, film, and theater as well. Yeah. And really excelled in each medium. And she's one of those actresses that you almost don't know which you would put her in as being sort of the most famous for. Yeah. Because you could easily say with all her theater work that she's a theater actress, you know. Well, for just one part, she won the Oscar, Emmy, and Tony. So exactly. that's just amazing. Exactly. Yeah. You know, so that yeah. exactly. So that kind of thing, I think, yeah. is awesome. So that, I, I look up to that kind of career. Awesome. Yeah. I, I would I would bet on you. I think oh, it was great. You. So thank you very much for doing this. I really appreciate it. It's my pleasure. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.